Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode we are doing In the Court of the Dragon by Robert W. Chambers. This is the next installment in the King and Yellow collection that he published in 1895. Uh, and this one was chosen by our patrons, did really well on the, the poll. And, uh, you know, I, I expect that we will make it all the way through the King and Yellow. I don't think we'll get stalled out on any of these. Yeah, I hope we don't. I, I've really enjoyed this. So this story to me felt uh, the slightest of the of the three that we've covered so far. We'll talk about all of that in our uh, discussion. Um, I really enjoyed this story, though. It, it, it's interesting. I think it's very different than The Mask and the Repair of Reputation. So why don't we just get right into it? All right, then. The uh, third installment in The King in Yellow. So like the, the first two, like the Repairer of Reputations and the Mask uh, in the Court of the Dragon begins with an epigram, but this time it's not actually a made up bit of verse that you know we can presume or even assume is from the play, The King in Yellow. Uh, this is actually from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. It's a, it's a real thing, right? Omar Khayyam, the 11th century Persian scholar and scientist. Uh, and Chambers here has actually specifically used the Edward Fitzgerald English translation. Uh, this was uh, done from a manuscript at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. This was immensely popular in the second half of the 19th century. So uh, let's get this epigram. I'll just read it into the microphone and then we can pause to think about what this is setting up. It is it is done in verse. Fitzgerald did this in verse. I'm not going to read for the verse, though. I'm going to uh, actually just read for the, the punctuation. O thou who burnst in heart from those who burn in hell, whose fires thyself shall feed in turn, how long be crying, mercy on them, God? Why, who art thou to teach and he to learn? Yeah, this comes from uh, what Edward Fitzgerald calls the Calcutta manuscript, the one with uh, ex the expostulation is how he refers to it. And this this verse, he says, is, uh, I don't know, I'm calling it apocryphal. He doesn't use that word, but he, he, he basically makes the argument. It comes from his introduction to the, to the text that this verse in particular really goes against the grain of the whole of the Rubaiyat, which just means quatrain. And, and to him, they make a kind of counter argument against the rest of the text. Uh, and the text in general of the Rubaiyat is skeptical of the promises of religion. And also in Edward's, Edward Fitzgerald's point of view, it's Epicurean in tone, or at least in content, which is to say that it promotes the view that that pleasure is the goal of life. And that's not to say like pure somatic or hedonic pleasure, but really the reduction of pain and fear. And uh, this is a philosophy that's, that's sort of pre-Platonic. Um, it, it was rediscovered in, in the Enlightenment era uh, and kind of reintroduced into the Western canon of philosophy uh, much later than, you know, Aristotle and Plato. What's interesting, though, is that this quatrain can only be found in the introduction to the Fitzgerald translation of the of the Rubaiyat. And he talks about it in the way I just described. So I think Chambers knows what he's up to here in choosing this, again, I'm calling it apocryphal quatrain from the Rubaiyat. And I think the, the general thrust of the meaning of these lines uh, appears to be, uh, don't have sympathy for those souls in hell or you'll end up there yourself. Who, who are you to teach God about, I don't know, I guess justice or something like that. So we'll keep that in mind as, as the story goes on. Kind of the Epicurean strain, um, in the Rubaiyat, the way that this 
the quatrain is an argument against that, kind of a very pro-Christian, at least, or pro-Islamic view of, uh, of, of heaven and hell and of God's justice, uh, and how that plays into the text overall. Yeah, this is an interesting view of of heaven and hell and and justice and and corruption in these lines, right? Because what's what, what's being advocated here is an idea not that hell is some kind of corruption of God's plan or God's design, but is actually a part of it. And if people are there, it's because God wants them there, and you shouldn't pity them because you shouldn't be questioning God's plan. Right. It's. This notion uh, that people, especially Calvinists, use uh, for this notion of double predestination, which comes from a verse in Romans, or at least the theological backing for it does, the scriptural backing of the theology uh, that says God creates vessels of wrath and vessels of grace, um, that that people are predestined, both are elect to go to heaven and then also to not have access to God's grace at all. And so this sense of wondering, of feeling like, will I be able to enjoy heaven if people are suffering in hell, people that I know, is a question that's come up through the ages of theology. And and the best response I think theologians can give to those who are already converted is, you know, something from Job, like, uh, you know, who are you <laughs> to question me? You know, did you make, <laughs> did you make the earth? Did you, you know, create the, the Leviathan, you know, that sort of thing. So um, it's an interesting, I mean, this story is not caught up in the theology of that question. Uh, but I think it's, it's an interesting starting point for the story that Chambers has for us. Yeah, what we're supposed to be thinking about as we get into the story, which we actually will do here in just a moment, what we're supposed <laughs> to be thinking about is, are there people who deserve to be tormented eternally in hell <laughs> or not, right? And and what would that what would that look like? So let's get into the, the the story proper. So also like the first two stories in The King in Yellow, this one is a first person account. Uh, though here we're we're, we're never going to know the narrator's identity. In this case, we're back in Paris, and more precisely, where the Church of Saint Barnabé. Uh, there is really a Saint Barnabas, of course, right? But there is no such church in Paris, so uh, that's probably something that we'll talk about in the in the discussion of why Chambers has picked this saint, given that there is no actual church with this name in Paris. So the narrator has come to the church for Vespers, the the evening mass. The Vespers proper, just to say the singing, that's over. And now it is time for the sermon. So there's a bit of organ music as the priest ascends the podium. And this prompts the narrator to tell us about this music. And he says that usually he loves the organ music at San Barnabé, but today it has been harsh and dissonant and not due to any lack of skill. It's not that the organist is bad at playing the organ. This is clearly intentional. It is the music it, itself that is harsh and dissonant. And the narrator even wonders if perhaps something evil might have entered the church undetected and taken possession of the area around the organ. No leaps in, in logic there, no assumptions <laughs> about anything. Uh, but he thinks that this might be possible because in medieval churches, the religious area where priests conduct the rituals, that's called the choir, uh, this was built first and was consecrated as soon as it was ready. But then the lay area for worshipers would, was built next. And because that could take decades, right? We're thinking about like big uh, Gothic cathedrals here, because that could take decades and decades to complete. Sometimes that part of the church just wasn't blessed at all, and therefore isn't protected from evil powers. 
So maybe the church could have been invaded by something, you know, that part of the church anyway. But then the narrator remembers that that can't be what's going on here because this is actually not a medieval church. It's from the 18th century. So I don't know. That was three paragraphs for no reason, I guess. But <laughs> something bad is going to happen here. So I, I guess Chambers is signaling to us, you know, there is actually a reason here. I think that he is signaling to us that this is not a Christian supernatural story, even though it's taking place in a church. And even though that's what the epigram maybe suggests, at least that's my sense of it. Yeah. Well, the narrator has this real uh, confrontation with the incongruity of his beliefs. I mean, he's for a minute willing to believe that the lay area, the lady is unconsecrated. Maybe the organ section is, uh, and that, you know, this practice probably wouldn't have taken place in the, you know, Rococo, which is to say like Baroquely and ornately decorated, uh, cathedral here that's been built or church that's been built. Uh, and that's interesting too. I mean, I think what Chambers is showing us here is, uh, again, as we've seen in the past two stories, an ongoing interest in societal changes. Like these beliefs that the church might be haunted or not sacred in some way in some parts of the church doesn't line up with what we know now. And something that was built 100 years ago clearly wouldn't have these properties. It's only old things that can be haunted. And maybe, uh, you know, people's beliefs haunt, haunt these places as well. But, uh, He's saying there's there's no way that the both those things could be true because I know when this was built. It's not like it has some secret, you know, like we saw in the rats in the walls, <laughs> some like secret ancient depth that no one has found before. Like you can actually go look at the records of this place and that demystifies it. So on some level, we're looking at demystification or disenchantment, um, which is part of this transition from kind of a sacred world to a secular world. And I think that that is Chambers bugaboo in this story in the same way kind of the move to impressionistic art was in, it was his, um, I don't know, bone to pick with societal change in the mask and technological change in the repair of reputations. I, I do want to say something about this organ playing, though. I attended <laughs> services at Christ Church in Philadelphia for a while. Uh, it's an Episcopal church. It's a historical site. It is a beautiful place. If you're in Philadelphia, you should stop in there and do the tour. Uh, you know, give a dollar to donate to the church if you're if you're so able. They do they do beautiful restoration work on the church. It's it's one of the first churches in America. Um, it's a simple space, not Rococo, uh, and a really wonderful uh, church as I experienced it. But sometimes the organist would play exactly as the narrator describes <laughs> in this text. I'm not going to say his name here because I, I don't I don't know. But it was awesome and you'd hear these like real polychromatic chords and just like like these riffs that were dark and they weren't mistakes and so, sometimes i felt as though i were in the middle of like a horror movie score as he was playing the processional <laughs> or recessional and i loved it but now after reading this story i'm i'm concerned that i wasn't paying close enough attention to what the organist was up to <laughs> yeah it turns out actually that probably everyone else in the church was really enjoying the music only you were hearing it that way the whole time but i'm <laughs> yes. with you I, don't, I like organ music a lot but i don't really i find it actually generally incongruous in a church even though church organ is like a thing. It's a tradition for centuries now, right? For like four centuries. But I think of organ, organ to me feels like, yeah, like a, a horror movie score or Inagata de Vida, right? But like, you know, right, that's what right, I think yeah. of, right? So yeah, I'm with you here. Well, we learned now that the narrator has come to this service because he's, he's looking for some peace because he's had three nights of physical and mental trouble that's been brought on by reading the play, The King in Yellow. 
But he's not finding that piece, and in large part because of the organ, uh, though no one else near him seems bothered by it. It seems like he is the only person who's hearing it this way. And the priest begins his sermon. The topic here is fear, fear for the soul. And he says that there is no reason to fear for your soul because nothing exists that can harm a soul. But this is a really hard lesson for us to learn. And he suggests that we are all susceptible to fearing for our soul, even though such fear is needless. Now, the narrator is skeptical, and he wonders how the priest is going to square this claim of his with what the church fathers have to say about this particular issue. But he never hears any more of the sermon because he's distracted by the organ player leaving the organ room. This organist is a slender man. He's he's dressed in black, and his face is extremely pale. It's not the you know pinkish or, or yellowish hue that we normally describe as as white in people's skin color. It's it's genuinely white. And then the narrator sees the same slender man with the same pallid face leaving the organ again, even though there was definitely not enough time for him to have gone back to it. Now on its own, right, that is pretty creepy. But then this man makes eye contact with the narrator and those eyes are full of intense and deadly hate. And after this experience, he tries to return his attention to the sermon, but he finds himself now full of mockery for the priest. He says, all devoutness had fled. And uh, now he thinks of a bit of verse by the Victorian poet Robert Browning. Uh, This is what the the verse is. The skirts of St. Paul has reached, having preached us those six Lent lectures, more unctuous than ever he preached. And so the the narrator decides that there's just no use in being here, and he he leaves the church in the the middle of the the sermon, all because of this you know look from the organist. These lines from Robert Browning come from a poem uh, called "Up at a Villa Down in the City," and it, in my reading, it's a kind of cynical poem about the pros and cons in in life in the city versus life in the country villa. And basically, it's better to live in the country, but there's nothing better than visiting a day (laughs) for a day in the city. And the church in the city in this text feels really busy and kind of subordinate to the clock in some ways. And also there's some maybe hypocrisy of the parishioners or maybe even the wealthy uh, dukes or even the clergy who attend and run the services. So that's all kind of caught up here. That's the, the mocking nature that he thinks of these Browning lines. Of course, the conflict of city life versus country life, of uh, being part of the crowd versus kind of having your soul be able to experience the world is in, in the country is really typical of romantic poetry as well. I really love Robert Browning. I think he's a fantastic poet. Uh, I, I want to go back to the sermon here. The text for the sermon is taken from Psalm 104, verse, verse 22. And that psalm in general, it's one of the psalms of praise, and it's a psalm about how great creation is. And the section that the text is referencing, the text for the sermon, is about how beasts were also made by God and how they go about their business while man labors and how great it is that God made everything. The next section is about the sea and references, you know, the Leviathan and how God feeds all the creatures, you know, their meat. Um, and, and you see how this sort of Psalm about how great creation is, how God cares for creation, you know, results in the, in the Christ's speech about not worrying about how, you know, God clothes the lilies of the field and and cares for the sparrow. Um, and how this is a big part of the, you know, Christian tradition of understanding creation. And, 
you can see how that might feed into a homily about how there's nothing really to fear for the soul. God made the soul. He cares for it. Only God can destroy what he's made. You know, you can imagine the the lines that this sermon is going down. And yet the narrator here is filled with fear and dread in his soul. I mean, the rest of the story, we're really not looking at his body or talking about the narrator's body. He's really in fear for his soul, though he's doing a lot of walking. And he's also experiences a lot of pain in his soul as a result of these fears. And this is also kind of the uh, anti-Epicurean mode of being. He's amplifying pain and fear rather than finding ways to diminish it. Though his instinct after experiencing, I don't know, some soul-crushing revelation after reading The King in Yellow is to go heal at a church to heal his soul. Right. And so one of the things we might want to consider when we get to the discussion is whether or not reading The King in Yellow actually made him susceptible to this kind of torment. Although there are going to be a lot of, hey, what what actually happened in this story questions, I think, that we're going to have when we get to the end. So uh, as you said, Brandon, the, the next bit of text is a lot of walking. Uh, it's uh, a gorgeous Sunday in April, and there are loads of people out just enjoying the sunshine. And we learn now that we're, we're in a pretty posh part of Paris. It's uh, the first arrondissement. It's uh, near the Louvre. The narrator you know, walks to the river, then he walks up the Champs-Élysées to the Arc de Triomphe. And this is something that should be an absolutely lovely experience. It's something else that would actually give a person peace, the the peace that in this case he couldn't find in the church. But the organist is here too. The narrator sees the organist while he's walking. He sees him on a bench near the Arc. And the narrator now just knows that this guy is after him. And he also knows that he deserves it. He deserves it for something that he was responsible for a long time ago. He can't remember what that was, but he's certain it happened and that it was bad and that he's had this coming. But still, he, he tries to escape the organist, uh, this, this dude with the intense and deadly stare. So he just wanders around Paris for a long freaking time. He wanders around Paris into the night and then kind of just suddenly finds himself hanging out at a cafe. Like he doesn't really remember having decided to stop there. Uh, And then when he's had this like sort of blinking realization, he decides to, you know, head home at this point. And home is an apartment in the Court of the Dragon. The title of the story, uh, the Court of the Dragon is an enclosed pedestrian area between the the Rue de, de Dragon, or Dragon, really, I probably should say, uh, and the Rue de Rennes on the left bank. Now, there is no actual Court of the Dragon, or at least there is not now in Paris, but the, the Rue de Dragon is, is real. Uh, I've walked down it. In fact, I have walked down it looking for mystical mischief. Uh, I never <laughs> did find any. And I really actually was sort of looking for the Court of the Dragon, just seeing if there would be like some alley or something. Uh, there, there was not, or at least not anything that didn't go to a dumpster for a uh, Picard shop. But uh, at any rate, the, the narrator gives us an interesting description here of this court. And he, uh, he tells us that he is a middle-aged student who lives alone. But when he moved in here, he was younger. And also he was not alone then. And when he gets back and is, is just putting his foot on the steps that lead up to his apartment, he realizes that the, the man in black is here behind him, only 10 feet away. And he decides to to run for it, to run past the organist and out the gate of the court. But the gate is closed and there is no escape. I mean, the gate is closed, even though he literally just walked through it. And here's what uh, the narrator says at this point. Hopeless, I set my back against the barred gate and defied him. And then there's a section break. So let's just pause here and then we'll have to come back to find out what actually <laughs> happens. What is the resolution of this, you know, this back against the wall defiance? 
Yeah, I mean, this really strong sense of hatred that the character feels that he needs to escape from is, uh, you know, really core part of the story. And he says uh, at one point that he wants to hide in his own den, which is a reference to the the sermon text that was read by the priest. The, the text is the sun ariseth. They gather themselves together. That is the animals and lay them down in their dens. But the den that this narrator is referring to that, that is making him feel like an animal. It's not that he's feeling the wonder of creation and thinking if only I were an animal that could hide in a den and be cared for by God. It, it's more like he feels debased, like he's being hunted like an animal. And I think this is a really nice inversion of meaning or a playing with meaning on Chambers part. I also find that the imagery at the end of the story is really rich. You know, the dragon is a beast that is often associated with the devil. Uh, the narrator feels he's being hunted in his own home, which ought to be a place of refuge. The, the sounds of the, you know, kind of the court in the in the court of the dragon are the clanging of iron and metal work and, you know, probably the screeching of metal. I don't know. It, to me, it's hellish. It's a, it's a kind of a soundscape that you might, we might, think is in hell of the blacksmith shop, the forge, the fire, all of these images are really working together here. And yet the narrator is at home there, or at least he's home in his apartment above this metal shop. Um, but I think the main thing to, to keep in mind here before we get to the end is that the hateful thing is looking for the narrator at his home, that he couldn't find refuge at the church. And now he's, now he's saying he can't find it at home. Yeah, there are a number of things going on here with the, the imagery. I mean, I think you're right to point this out as being hellish, right? This like clanging and banging of the, you know, just the sound of the blacksmiths. But then also I think there is this sense too that working with metal, right? That 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 digging things up out of the earth and melting them down and twisting them into things like weapons and so on is itself kind of hellish, right? It's a it's an emblem of evil on earth. But yeah, the whole idea of the court of the dragon, right? That could just be a euphemism for like Satan's palace in hell, right? Like that's what it might mean here. Even though it does just refer to this little area in between some buildings here in Paris off a street just called, you know, this the street of the of the dragon. But it's got that that imagery to it. But it is interesting that his apartment is above that, right? So you might think that his apartment is not so much in hell as above hell. And it is important then that he doesn't even get his feet really on the stairs to get out of hell. Like he's gotten, he has to go through hell to get home and has gotten trapped in it might actually be how I read that imagery. It's actually maybe not so much that he's he's assaulted in his home so much as like outside of his home, on his way home or something like that. Though I'm not quite sure what I would do with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair reading as well. And it certainly uh, maybe maps onto the journey he's taking that that we see revealed to us at the end of this story. <laughs> right, because uh, we are at the end of the story now. And so when we come back from this section break, uh, it turns out the whole thing was a dream. The narrator really did go to Vespers. And in fact, he's still at Vespers. This is where he fell asleep during the sermon. Uh, the business with the organ music and the organist chasing him, it was all a dream. Or was it? The narrator understands now who the organist is, or, or at least who the organist reminds him of. And here's precisely what he says. Let's read a little bit of text here. I knew him now, death and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had sent him. They had changed him for every other eye, but not for mine. I had recognized him almost from the first. I had never doubted what he was come to do. And now I knew that while my body sat safe in the cheerful little church, 
he had been hunting my soul in the court of the dragon. And suddenly now the organ music blares and there's a, a dazzling light that fills the church. And uh, I'm not just going to read like, the last two and a half paragraphs of this story because <laughs> I just don't see there's any utility in paraphrasing it when it's beautiful. But also I think we need all the details. So here's what Chambers writes. I raised my seared eyes to the fathomless glare and I saw the black stars hanging in the heavens and the wet winds from the Lake of Hali chilled my face. And now... Far away, over leagues of tossing cloud waves, I saw the moon dripping with spray. And beyond, the towers of Carcosa rose behind the moon. Death and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had sent him, had changed for every other eye but mine. And now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light. And as I fell, the radiance increasing, increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow whispering to my soul, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's it. That's the end of the story. So I think we're going to have some unpacking of this uh, this paragraph to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it's entirely possible he fell into a second dream here. And there's a lot of this bit about the lost souls, his soul being hunted in the court of the dragon. Uh, it's talking about really dualism, like the split of the mind and the body, the way that the narrator has fallen into the hands of the living God is this, this, you know, sounds to me like, you know, the famous sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, and it's clear that what might be haunting the narrator is this weakness, whatever thing he had done in the past, though it could also be that he's just read the King in Yellow recently and he's just in bad shape. <laughs> you know, this story feels very slight to me compared to the other two stories we've covered in this collection. And, and by my lights, its presence here is serving to give the audience a, a deeper sense of what happens. Maybe it's an exploration of what happens to the poor souls who read The King in Yellow in its entirety. Uh, up until this point, The King in Yellow has been referenced tangentially. And here, this story is about the soul effect of having read this and what it's actually doing to the person. This is a story about a person who has damned themselves maybe in order to experience a piece of art, though maybe they damned themselves before and this art called to them as a result of that. And and yet this new Rococo style church, which is ornate and Baroque and beautiful in decoration and the the healing words of the scripture, the way that this character has sought healing at the church don't seem to be able to outshine the the corrupting darkness of the king in yellow. And I'm not really sure that too much more is going on in this story. So since we just kind of covered the end paragraph, I, I just gave you a little interpretation of what I think is going on. I want to get your sense of what you think this story is about, Glenn, before we talk about craft. Right. Let, let, let's situate this story in the context of the other two, right? E- each of the stories in this collection, at least at least so far, it's actually not going to be true of all of them by the time we're done. But so far, each of these stories has featured a character. And in fact, it's always been the narrator reading The King in Yellow, the, the play, uh, the, the script of the play, The King in Yellow, and, and having something happen to them as a result of that. The first story, The Repair of Reputations, uh, Jude reads The King in Yellow and also uh, really wants to murder a whole bunch of people and is totally delusional 
you know, because of having read The King in Yellow or has special access to cosmic, cosmically horrific knowledge and is really doing the bidding of, you know, some cosmic core figure, <laughs> The King in Yellow. Right. Um, but he's gone insane. Let's we'll, we'll put it that way. He's gone insane, but in a homicidal maniac kind of way. And then in The Mask, we have the, the narrator of that story also reads The King in Yellow and he gets sick. He comes down with this awful fever, but he doesn't seem to suffer other than that from having read it. Though when we did that episode, we did float the possibility that everything in the story after that is a delusion, but I don't think that's actually the case. But here we have someone being negatively affected by it in a, in a psychological sense, again, as we did with Castain in the, the Repair of Reputations, but not in the, I'm going to go murder my cousin in order to get the woman uh, I you know, love in a possessive manner sort of way, right? In the, I think that I'm being hunted by Satan kind of way, right? The fearing <laughs> for your soul kind of way. It's a paranoia, right? But not something that's expressing itself as violence uh, towards towards others. So Chambers is exploring different types of, I, I guess really maybe just different types of mental illness, different types of mental despair, here in in these in these stories is coming at them from different angles. And one of the questions of course we always have to ask in these king and yellow stories is whether or not it is only that people are being rendered mad or insane or you know delusional in some way or if the play the king and yellow is actually opening up genuine knowledge to them that they have access to that others don't that so then from our perspective seems insane so there is actually a question of whether or not he really did just fall asleep and in, in the church and dream this or if there is some objective truth to his experience here uh, my sense is that he felt he fell asleep and dreamed all of this but that i think his his soul is still being hunted by death and as long as he can keep his soul in his body he might be okay this vision at the end is very much like a, a vision that St. John might have, the, the, the one who experienced the Revelation, where we get the Book of Revelations. This is certainly an apocalyptic vision, but it's specific to the nature of his own soul. And one thing we should talk about with these stories is that each story so far has situated this kind of mental break with massive societal changes. In the recap, I've kind of floated this idea that these changes that are being referenced in this story are the changes that result from a shift from a, a sacred society to a secular society. That Browning poem talks about how the bells are keeping time, but that's clearly also a part of industrialization and what's happening in, in the city. And then you also have the incongruity that this character feels, this narrator, with believing that the church could be haunted, that spirits are even real and could have gotten in to the church because he knows when it was built, he knows he could find the blueprints if he really wanted to, uh, this sense of disenchantment and demystification of the earth. And I wonder if you think there's some interplay going on there, or, or maybe a broader commentary that Chambers is making now that we're three in that he's situating these characters like paranoia and soul illnesses or sicknesses with these massive societal changes in that and really in Findesiacal Europe. Yes, I, I do. Absolutely. I mean, something we, we've talked about in, in both of the, the previous stories is the fact that that Chambers is writing this, you know, you said fin de siècle, end of end of the century, a turn of the century might really be the better way to translate that, you know, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. But but really writing this 
at the height of the the second industrial revolution that was so transformative to the, the way that we live, right? We live in the world that is after this. And Chambers is a middle-aged man at this point when he's writing these stories and, and grew up before those effects were widespread. And he is clearly looking at the world around him and seeing a lot of change and, and having a reaction to it and, and maybe a reaction against it. And we have seen that in both the repair of reputations and in the the mask, uh, you know, in the mask, it was really, you know, it was about about photography, right? That was the the vehicle for that. But but here, I think we are getting another dose of something we had in the repair of reputations, which is industrial society, industrial civilization leading to madness, leading to all of these uh, anxieties and pressures and stresses that are unhealthy for us, and in particular in our urban environments. Uh, we don't see that directly here, but it's hard not to hear the the clanging of the workshops in the Court of the Dragon as anything other than industrialization. If we're thinking about if we're thinking about this in terms of how it's situated with the the other two stories and the sort of the the thematic material that he's working with there. So yeah, I absolutely see that. Though it is also framed here, you know, in this real personal narrative as well, where we we have to wonder who is the dead person and in what way is the narrator responsible for that person having died. Right. And and that might not be something we ever get to determine, though we've seen uh, Chambers make reference to like past texts, past stories in this uh, King and Yellow collection before. So maybe we'll learn more about this narrator or, or something like that in future stories. I want to move on now to talk about the craft. And really what I want to talk about are the illusions in this story and how they serve the story or maybe just put on display. We have two major and one minor kind of poetry allusions in the story. The first major kind of poetic allusion here is in the epigram. And we talked about that at the top of the show. And we we mentioned that it seems, you know, at least I mentioned that it seems, you know, anti-Epicurean to me. Or it's, you know, as Fitzgerald describes it in the introduction, it's a counter argument to the rest of the Rubia. And, and this quatrain states that pain and fear are inevitable and who are you to question God? And then we have the psalm here, which is Psalm 124, uh, which is about the wonders of God's creation. It's a praise psalm. And I'm thinking about reading it in its entirety in a moment. I may do that. And, <laughs> and do. finally, <laughs> finally, we have the tongue-in-cheek, you know, humorous Robert Browning poem that's sort of about the hypocrisy of city parishes and living in the city and all this sort of stuff. So let me read the psalm. I guess I'm going to do it because I want to. And then I just want to hear what you think the illusions are driving at in this story? Are they driving at something larger or are they just sprinkled in as a, a kind of reality effect? Also, before I read this, I'll just bring up St. Barnabas here real quick since we're in, in the church mode here. St. Bar Barnabas was uh, one of Paul's companions and uh, we mostly know about him from the Acts of the Apostles. And Barnabas and Paul fell out after they had a disagreement, though they did a lot of traveling together and were very close. And it's kind of a... A really fascinating part of the acts is Barnabas's role in it, how important he seems to Paul. And then he's never really mentioned again after his falling out with Paul. So I don't know, he might be another, uh, the creation, the introduction of St. Barnabas here into this text might also be worth considering. But here's, here's the Psalm. I'm going to read the King James version because that's what is referenced. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, thou art very great. 
thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment? Who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain? Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters? Who maketh the clouds his chariot? Who walketh upon the wings of the wind? Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire? Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever? Thou coveredst it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto a place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he hath planted, where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. Thou markest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey, and seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth, they gather themselves together, and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work, and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein all things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships, there is that Leviathan, whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. That thou givest them they gather, thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. Thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills, and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. So that's the psalm full of the tensions that are kind of present in this story. <laughs> the, the glories of God creation. I mean, water is a classic spirit imagery. So this is like a psalm that praises the nourishment of God's spirit for all his creation as a metaphor, in, as well as talking about 
the fact that all creatures benefit from the the water on the earth and that even the most horrifying things in the depths of the chaos the the chaotic water the the sea the leviathans are are nourished as god chooses uh and the leviathans were not like something people in this world <laughs> really loved or thought of as like this positive uh omen and so you and then the tension at the end is i will praise god and may he curse sinners. He can also destroy mountains. He can do anything he wants. He created the boundaries of the of the sea. He created the boundary of night. Everything is part of God's creation. So let's praise it. Uh, I wanted to read that one because, you know, I like reading the Psalms every once in a while. Uh, but I think this one is a particularly interesting choice for the story as we put it in conversation, not just with the apocryphal verse, the apocryphal quatrain of the Rubiat, but also the tensions that Robert Browning has brought up in his poem that we've talked about in uh, The City Versus the Country. So I just uh, would love to get your thoughts on how you see these illusions working for the text or whether or not you think they are. Well, I think we we should situate the the psalm in particular with the imagery that we get at the end here. This imagery of Carcosa and the Lake of Hali and the the king in yellow, because the the psalm, although it's it's doing a lot, one of the things the psalm is doing is is depicting Earth as this sort of paradise that God has created and looking at the the goodness of that and giving us a lot of images of of light and and water that that correspond. To that of, of how the earth is, uh, or the way in which the earth is, just you know this beautiful, amazing creation. But it seems actually like the narrator is shunning that here in the story. Right? He he leaves the church. He walks out. It's a beautiful day. It's April in Paris, which is the best time to go to Paris. It's a beautiful sunny day. He's walking down, you know, one of the best landscapes, you know, parts of Paris that there that there is, and can't enjoy it and in fact wanders around all day and doesn't even remember doing it it's not actually until night falls that he even seems to regain consciousness and then he walks uh, you know i left this out of the recap but he actually walks through uh, one of the the urban forests in paris to get back to his home his home is on the other side of the the river from where he's been wandering around and it seems that he can't exist actually in the the light anymore that that he has to only exist in the darkness. And then even this this vision that he has, right, when he comes back out and realizes, oh, all of that was just a dream, I'm still in the church, and then has this second vision, this vision of Carcosa, the light actually sears his eyes. And so what he sees after that then is uh, the black stars. Uh, he he feels the, the wet winds from the, the Lake of Hali chilling his face, right? It's not a warm, pleasant wind. It's a, it's a damp, cold wind wind, right? An unpleasant wind. And everything about this place is really kind of the inversion of the imagery in Psalm 124. And this is about not life and creation, but it's about death, right? It's about death and the awful abode of lost souls. Uh, we get lots of words here in this in this vision that seem to really contrast with what we get in the psalm, right? That we've got, you know, flaring lights, uh, we've got, as opposed to like beautiful lights, we've got flames, we've got uh, like radiance. These things are like not necessarily nice. And then we've got, we've got thundering and we've got depths, right? And we have speech here. The king in yellow actually speaks to the, the narrator here. And in fact, he, he whispers to the soul of the narrator. And he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, you know, I was unclear who that God is, if that is the king in yellow referring to himself or to 
the Christian God or, or some other thing altogether. All but I was interested in the phrase, the living God. I, I don't know if this is something that's used in any Christian tradition. It's not used in the Christian traditions that, you know, I work on in the late, in late antiquity and the early middle ages. But it strikes me that, you know, one of the attributes of the Christian God is that this is the God who died and returned to life. Right. So I felt too, that this is also maybe something of a contrast. I, I think the living God is uh, a phrase used in Christianity, um, though I'm not sure really how often, but it's, it's not an unfamiliar phrase to me. I'll put it that way or something that strikes me as um, a mockery of God in the way that the King in yellow is using it. And I, I too wonder if the King in yellow is a, referring to himself or is basically demonstrating to this narrator that he cannot escape death and that his soul is going to hell and uh that might actually be better for him he might be better suited for carcosa than to end up being burned by the the kind of radiance of the living god that 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 uh that he might come to prefer hell to heaven and maybe that is also a, a kind of a major theme of the story a major concern of chambers as he's thinking about how disenchantment is sort of taking over the world in, in, in the rise of the second industrial revolution. Well, and the, the narrator, I mean, right, we should be clear that the narrator's psychological journey here is that he thinks he deserves to be sent to hell. He thinks he deserves torment. He thinks he deserves punishment, right? That's that's what's happening here. He's responsible for the death of of someone, uh, a male, and I'm assuming it's the person he used to live with in the apartment in the Court of the Dragon, a roommate or a, a lover of some sort, something like that, um, who died. I don't know, maybe he murdered him. <laughs> Probably not, but maybe, or some, you know, some sort of accident he could have prevented or something like that. And that that is haunting him here, right? And so he feels like he actually deserves to be punished. It's interesting too that this seems to be something that he really has successfully put out of his mind and maybe actually completely forgotten until he has read the the king in yellow and then we might wonder uh, you know actually did this really happen or did reading the play the king in yellow and you know implant this false memory in his mind though maybe that's that might be delving too many layers away from the uh, <laughs> or getting too many steps away from the the text but uh you know some interesting things that we might might play around with there but you know i do think that it's it's not just that the world itself is becoming harsh though that is clearly something chambers has in mind here there is a personal journey here there's some dark backstory to this as as well well, we know that reading The King in Yellow isn't really good for anybody, especially <laughs> if you've done something wrong in the past or you have some sort of questionable moral attitudes about what you want to do with your life or what, well, you know, you're in love with your uh, best friend's girlfriend or, uh, you know, you, you you live in a delusional state of mind. I mean, this King in Yellow isn't helping anybody with any of these <laughs> problems. The, the last thing I really want to ask you is where does this story fall for you in your ranking of The King in Yellow stories to date? Is it first, second or third? Right. Great question. Because in particular, in our year in review shows for the first two years we've been on the air, 
the stories in this in this collection have made it onto my favorite episodes of the year list of both the repair of reputations and the mask as i suspected it's probably not going to make it this year though it it might you know it's pretty early in the year so it's still you know there's a chance that i will not like uh, all the other stories that we read as much as this one but this is my, my least favorite of the stories that we've read so far and not because i didn't enjoy it but it, because i think like you brandon it's it's it is the slightest of them it's not nearly as thematically rich as the others though it does have some absolutely gorgeous prose and in particular some some beautiful imagery and there's some real haunting depth to the story itself if not to the thematic material but i think you and i you know as much as we value craft as much as we value you know a, a great story beautifully told we also really appreciate rich thematic material and i just think this is there's less of that here than in the first two stories uh, how, how about you yeah, I do. I could echo your sentiments precisely. It's just, it's slight. So I'm looking forward to continuing with this. It's not dissuaded me from wanting to read more of The King in Yellow. In fact, it makes me want to read more of it um, because I love the first two stories so much. This story really felt like Chambers was just going in a different direction. He wanted to instantiate just what the psychological effects of reading The King in Yellow are, maybe to set up uh, kind of more depth in future readings or in the future stories. So to me, it feels like a, you know, a second season or a second book or something like that. It's really about resetting the table a little bit for future encounters with this story. And that's why it makes me excited to read more. But right now it's in it's three of three for um, The King in Yellow, what we've read so far. There's another thing that this story is missing that the first two have, of course, that I really love, which is world building. Though I do think that the business here with the church being San Barnabé and there not actually being any San Barnabé church in Paris is to indicate to us that this is not the real Paris, that this is this is the Paris of the mask, right? That this is this alternate reality that uh, Chambers is uh, is imagining here that's meant to clue us in. Though I, I am still interested in trying to figure out why Chambers has picked St. Barnabas here. The only thing I could come up with is that uh, St. Barnabas was tortured to death. He, you know, he was martyred. Many, you know, saints, including many apostles were, but in particular, he was burned to death. And there's a lot of burning and flames happening in this story, right? Everything about hellish imagery. That was the only thing I could really come up with. Uh, but that's something I would love to talk with people about on the forum. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a good answer either. So I'd love to continue the conversation about why St. Barnabas. It could also just be that there's no uh, Church of St. Barnabas in, in Paris, uh, and that it was a saint he could pick. I'd love to pick our listeners' brains about this. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network and get access to all our bonus episodes and also have your say in what we cover, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. If you're unable to help support us on Patreon for any reason, that's all right. You can support us by continuing to review our show and get the word out there about it. We'd love to have more listeners, more reviews, help us be more visible to people who might be looking for content like this. Uh, please consider taking some time to review our shows on, on whatever app you're listening on. You can also join us on the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit to let us know what you thought of this story in the Court of the Dragon. Let us know the reasons why you think St. Barnabas might have been the uh, saint of the church in this story, or if you have more to say about the story, join us on the forums to let us know. 
Yeah, and you can come point out all the places where uh, Scripture uses the phrase living God that I just uh, couldn't think (laughs) of here. Uh, That'd be a fun conversation to have as well. I would love going through that some more as well. Uh, So next time, we're going to be back with The Rose Garden by M.R. James. Uh, Finally, the return of M.R. James to the show. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.